0: How do I get unstuck? How do I get out of this situation I don't like? And how do I still provide for a family like I resolved to do? And how do I deal with the idea that I don't see a future in front of me? And so suicide was the most practical solution.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Tales from the Journey. I'm Stephanie Zamora and today we're here with Rob Tull who has an incredible story of Finding his second path and really uncovering his purpose after a dark night of the soul, which wasn't all that long ago. So, Rob, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I would love if you could start by just sharing a little bit more about you and what it is that you do.
0: Yeah, certainly. I'm a speaker and an author, and I work with uh, parents and professionals to help them get unstuck and onto a new path. And as an executive in the financial services sector for about 20 years, I experienced that feeling of stuckness that I think is very common. And there's not a lot of options or a lot of guides to help get unstuck. And so after I went through kind of the the consequences of being stuck too long, I had to go through a developmental process to, to find a way to get to a second path.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. It's such hard work to do yourself. And 20 years is a really long time to be on the wrong path. I mean, I have a A shorter period where I was doing the wrong thing and and living the wrong life, and it took quite a toll on me. So take us back to the beginning. Who were you during that 20-year period? What were you doing, and what did life look like?
0: Yeah. So I was actually, uh, on paper, it was a really desirable life. I was an executive in a financial services firm. I'd, I'd spent 20 years working my way up. I was very decorated in terms of certifications and designations. I was a thought leader. So, I had all these things that made it look like, wow, this person really has it together. The problem was, I wasn't by nature a financial services person. By my natural wiring, I'm more of an artist. I wanted to be a comic book artist, I wanted to be a writer. And a lot of advice I got along radically different. And a lot of the advice I got on the way, which was really well meaning, was you know, that's not the right path to go. Like if you want to accomplish certain things in life, you need to take this path that everybody else is on. And one of the, the guiding principles that was instilled in me very early on was um, I was raised with the mentality that that as a boy, my responsibility was to provide for my family at all costs. So this is even as a child and family meant future family, meaning still imaginary. Wow. And so that was instilled very early on. And so That created this kind of mantra, which is, you know, life is about providing for other people. It's not about my own enjoyment or well-being. It was very much kind of the archetype for a martyr. And so looking at that and saying, well, I really want to be an artist that lines up with my spirit and and, everything that I'm about. And it's like, yeah, but can you provide for a family that way? I don't know, I'm 18. How would I know? (laughs) Um, And so you you end up, yeah, I end up taking a path that was well-worn. Everybody else was going down this path of you go to a normal university and you major in something that's really benign and boring and you get a boring job and you sit in the desk just like all the other worker ants. And that's what I did. And so for a long time, I continually just repressed a lot of those feelings. And over time, you start to that kind of you make lemonade out of lemons. You know, I found positive attributes in my career and and really found some things that were enjoyable. But at the end of the day, it wasn't, you know, completely fulfilling. And the problem with committing to one path and then continuing to double down on it is that things start to rely on you. You established, I established a family. I now had dependents. I had all this structure really dependent on me continuing to you know follow this path of being a provider on this one avenue. And so at some point, you either run out of stamina or you run out of opportunities. and And for me, I ran out of stamina and, and I got stuck. I put myself in a position where I continually tried to find an exit when I knew, and there was there was a point in time where it became evident somebody had told me in a professional setting, "Hey, you missed your calling after I'd done a presentation that was really impassioned and stuff. And it was that kind of feedback where you're like, yeah, I did. And so over time, trying to redirect my life from this well-accomplished professional into something else that's undefined, I didn't have a support network in place that allowed that kind of flexibility. And so when you don't, you end up stuck in the same spot. And when you're stuck too long, there's a lot of negative byproducts that come out. And not only does it increase pressure but it starts to destabilize things and so there was you know responses where i'd either be retreating from issues in other words pulling back or i'd be scattering in that like i would start grasping at all these other things to create progress even though it wasn't or i would just start to drift where i just unplugged and became completely aloof and you know there's only so long you can do that before the the negative implications affect other parts of your life and that's kind of what led to that that Uh, Fork in the road or that inflection point.
1: Yeah And so I know 2018 is when you really had your dark night of the soul but what Mm -hmm. what led up to that and what was going on like how was the effect of Exactly what you said like retreating or not facing or not even showing up fully How did that start to affect different areas of your life and your own well-being?
0: Yeah, So it all kind of started, it started earlier in 2016 and then just continually compressed. And the way that I describe it is kind of being like in a crucible, where the pressure and the heat just continues to intensify. I accepted a promotion that was really high regarded. And what it did is just caused me to work even more. And so at that point, I was working essentially seven days a week. It was like 15 to 18 hours a day. And I was traveling every other week. And it was in a profession where I wasn't really enjoying myself. And so like all those things kind of compound. And so what happens is I was throwing off toxic exhaust. So I'd go home and everybody in the household was like, we don't want you here. Everybody's happy without you. Um, And so, and I would come home to kind of refill my cup and recharge. And, And so what was happening was I wasn't getting recharged and there was a lot of resentment that was building up. And over time I had asked my partner, uh, you know, I'd like to leave my career and do something different, and my partner wasn't supportive. They 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 had a particular lifestyle they wanted to maintain, and so fast forward into kind of eighteen, and it was just it, from doing that for like most of sixteen and seventeen and eighteen, it just the the toxicity that I was throwing off was just way too high, and I couldn't manage myself. and And one of the things is when what I noticed for me when I travel a lot for work it disrupts my healthy patterns that allow for like good healthy boundaries. So like consistent working out, consistent diet, consistent. And so when there's nothing to maintain the system kind of instability, it, it becomes unstable and unpredictable. And so I went through a process of separating from my partner. And at that point, once once we separated, it was a question of, well, now what? I was living in a location that I didn't enjoy. I was in a profession that wasn't fulfilling anymore. And in that, my whole mindset for 20 years was working to be a provider for a family and was really working to this long-term goal of, you know, essentially be an older parent, be an older couple supporting grown children. All of that was taken off the table. And so it was a question of now what? And there was a a final move where I said, "Look, I'm I'm leaving my career. I'm actually going to go do what I want to do now. Now that I've lost all the tangible things in my life, that this is what I'm going to do." And my partner didn't tolerate that. It was, "No, you can't leave your career and and walk away from this earning potential. You're at an elite level." And so I was basically told the thing that you know was a wrong decision from 20 years ago. You can't undo that. And so there was a, a feeling of a really trapped. And so being a very rational person and being highly analytical, the conclusion I came up with, the best solution was, well, how do I get unstuck? How do I get out of this situation I don't like? And how do I still provide for uh, a family like I resolved to do? And how do I kind of deal with the idea that I don't see a future in front of me? Because everything was just taken away. And so suicide was the the most practical solution. Like I, I kept going back and forth on it. They say, when you have a plan, that's a problem. And I had a really good plan. And and so I had a suicide attempt in front of my sons just after the 4th of July in 2018. And obviously it was ineffective from a biological perspective, but it was highly effective from an emotional and mindset perspective. But yeah, there was like, and it really was even up to that point, it was the most sound decision I could make. And it was unfortunate that it had to get there, but when I say it was an effective decision, that circumstance could not continue. Everything needed to end. And so that was the bright line end to that, essentially that whole existence.
1: Yeah. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. I totally relate to that. Did you have any support, any friends, any family that you were talking to, or were you very isolated leading up to that?
0: So that's a great question. I did have support, but the question is, you know, did I let the support in to actually help? And being somebody that always felt like a provider and protector, there was always this inner thing that I kept to myself. I was in therapy, I had really close friends, I had really supportive, you know, immediate family members. But at the end of the day, I knew I still had a responsibility I needed to fulfill like i needed to provide and so it was it almost became like a math equation where it was how do i get out of this situation and still honor all of the obligations i set out and so even if i had discussed that with somebody nothing they could have said would have you know changed my mind in what that calculus was and and so it felt lonely in that i was holding on to that decision myself but it wasn't actually alone.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's always interesting to me how different personalities approach the idea of suicide. Like for some, it is very logical. It's very rational. Like it sounds like for you and for others, it's very rooted in emotion. And either way, it it feels like the only option because we're so immersed, we're so stuck. So that makes a lot of sense. So what happened? You weren't successful thank goodness but what was it like after that for you
0: there was there was there was a there was a, shock, there was a shock afterwards when i when i woke up uh, and i realized i was still alive there was a, there was kind of a now what like there, <laughs> there was there there was this total cluelessness that that set in and i was it was almost like i was punch drunk i was like i don't, i don't even know which end is up now what I did know was that everything that was leading up to that point needed to stop. And I also knew that I didn't have the answers. And so just through that process of elimination, it, it kind of set me in the right direction. And so there was an extended period of treatment, but the big thing that occurred for me was changing how I saw myself in terms of my identity and my ideals and you know, having the mindset of protector, provider, and martyr really marginalized my own existence. And so the first thing I needed to do was unplug that. And in unplugging that allowed me to actually get to know myself in a sense and to say, so what is it that you as a person like? We get stuck in roles in life. And I really got stuck in a very specific role in even as much as I knew it didn't fit me authentically. I couldn't change it because so many other systems depended on that role to perform in its, in its predictable way. So it was really an investigation process. Like, okay, what do you do? Like, let's, let's dump out all the contents of you as a person and see what we have here so we can go through and identify like, who are you? And what does this actually mean? And so that was, that was extremely enlightening. Uh, and it was a messy process and there was no, there was no book for that. Like I, I searched around a lot for how do I, how do I do this? And I was studying a lot of Buddhism at the time. And the thing that really helped was the concept of emptiness and the concept of emptiness, which is, you know, we as individuals aren't anything. It's what we put in ourselves. And that's kind of a, a bastardization of it, but that helped me kind of like, Oh, if I just dump out all the stuff that's in me, I get to pick what I put back in. <laughs> like that was, and that was kind of cool. It was uh, the analogy I have for that is like emptying your junk drawer in the kitchen. Like if you, if you empty it out, you get to see everything that you've collected over time.
1: So, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. I have two questions. And the first one, just because I think that for one, there's a lot of stigma associated with getting treatment and support, but also I think that we're scared about what that means and what that looks like. So I would love if you're willing to share just a little bit about like what did the treatment process look like and how long did it last?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So I went to a residential treatment facility. And and the big thing is for me, when I asked myself, is this the right thing to do? There were two criteria that I realized I had, which was willing and desperate. I was willing because I clearly was willing to make a change. I, I wanted everything to end. I clearly was willing. And I was desperate because I used the most extreme solution I could think of and it didn't work. Well, now, now I'm desperate. I don't have the answer. And so I think when, when people approach any kind of professional assistance, that's, that's the first two questions they need to ask. Am I actually willing to do this? And am I desperate enough that I'm going to buy into this thing with total commitment? So that was that was kind of first. And then the second was to really be willing to let go of stuff. Um, and it was hard because it was letting go of identity, it was letting go of everything, like even the inner voice of being able to let go of that inner voice and say, and even ask the question: which voice in there is me? Like the one that's telling me to do this or the one that's listening? And so that aspect of it of really willing to kind of pull yourself apart, knowing you can put yourself back together, but it won't be the same, that, that was critical. And in terms of the stigma, you're right, there's a lot of stigma on it. And so one of the things that was interesting for me is, you know, I had a veneer that was very desirable to the outside world. You know, I had a gorgeous house, I had a great car, I had an amazing job, I had a beautiful partner, beautiful kids, like all these things that people would say, how dare you be unhappy? And, that, and so I had to get over the stigma myself. And that there's a sense of pride there you have to let go of. But it was also a level of asking myself, what is more strength? Like, like what is a demonstration of strength? Having no weakness or being vulnerable to everybody you meet. And I, I came to the realization that being vulnerable all the time strengthened me because I had the resilience to say, regardless of what happens in this encounter and what this person thinks of me, I will be fine. Like it doesn't affect me at all. And so that was really big. So I was able to kind of go into treatment authentically and discuss it with people openly. And the, the best thing it offered me was the ability to push the pause button on everything. And so everything got quiet. I could push the pause button and really focus on figuring out how to rebuild and redefine a second path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My second question is around, so we talk a lot about reorienting on the show and in my work because it's such a constant process when we go through these seasons that just turn us upside down. And you shared a little bit about, your own internal process of reorienting. And I love that um, analogy of the junk drawer because it's so true. And we don't realize that we have that available to us at any time, like any point we can lay everything out and say, what do I want to keep and what don't I? But what was the external reorienting process like for you in terms of finances and career and your ex-partner and your kids and, and how did you navigate all of that?
0: That's a great question. There was three questions that I asked myself that helped me reorient. Cause there's a point where life goes back to normal, but it's not the same normal. Right. And so I was sitting in a situation where so I was I had lived in Pennsylvania for 40 years. I was born and raised there and everything. And and I every time I would travel to either Nevada or Arizona where it was just dry and hot, I loved it. And I didn't love it just because it was a change of pace. I loved it because it said something to me. Like maybe I was in iguana in a past life, but it it felt right. <laughs> And so one of the questions I had was, well, I don't want to go back to normal life. Like, what can I do for me that is shows me that it's something new? And, the, and it's, it was three questions that I went through with myself to reorient the beginning of the orientation, which is what if, and, and it was, what if, what if I moved to Arizona? Like what, like, well, okay. I couldn't keep my job. Well, I've been traveling for two years and I wasn't in the office. What's, what's the difference? And then it was, well, I can't move. And so then the next question was, well, why not? Well, I can't. And I came up with all these reasons, and why not? But all of those reasons are just kind of fake excuses, because it's like, if you really want it, you'll overcome that. And then the third one was, okay, let's assume I solve that. Why not do it now? Why wait? Because all of the problems of getting stuck was because all of my focus was on this long term future. I was building a future for myself that never came to pass. And so, if I can ask myself what if for what I want and I can get rid of the barriers, then what's the hesitation? Why just delay? And so, I, first it was, let's relocate and not even solve anything about, you know, job, kids, anything. And the job said, look, we, we need you to stay on. We're That's fine. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't like this. This is not my passion. And what was interesting is, and this this comes to kind of goal setting and emotional rewards. So I had taken the job my entire career because the rewards it was going to offer me afterwards in some sort of long-term payout. And what it was is that was going to allow me to relax and do the things I really wanted to do once I achieved a certain level of, of financial success. So when I asked myself, well, what if the job isn't financial success? What, what can the job represent that now I no longer hate it or now I no longer feel like it's holding me back? When I lost my family, because we literally did, dis- my, my partner and I dissolved the family in. We actually split the kids and, and like it, it was really traumatic. What I realized was the company I worked for was essentially a family. And I thought, well, I can be a provider and protector for that family in a way where there's healthy boundaries where I can work to serve them and knowing it, my future's not dependent on it. I'm doing it out of care and compassion in the moment. And so by just changing that mindset, I could keep the career. And then when it was time for me to move and, and we dissolved the family unit, one of the things that happened when I was away, uh, when I was in treatment, my partner contacted me once when I was away and, and just simply contacted me and said, you know, you need to stay there for you. We're, we're really good without you. Assume you're not doing this for kids or family or whatever, just do it for you and don't worry, you know, if the kids still want a relationship with you, that's up to them. And so part of my own self-identification was I had to let go of this idea of a father, of being a father, because that was really driving my martyr role, like this idea of you know, the ultimate protector provider. So once I let go of that idea of being a father, in my mindset model. I could then be it in a way that actually fit my life and my kids. And so that whole reorientation process was really about challenging the preconceived notions and being willing to get rid of old models that weren't serving me. And and those two things really allowed me to not just see things differently, but actually behave differently in a way that was more aligned with my own purpose.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love this so much. And my next question is kind of from my own personal curiosity because mm-hmm. I had a whole period, a very long period after my own loss and trauma and everything I had been through where I kept asking the question, but what does that mean? Because my brain was rewiring and I was coming back from PTSD and like I was reorienting inside my own life. And I had such a hard time wrapping my brain around like, What does it mean to actually do those things? And so I think it'd be very fruitful for other people to hear as well as just satisfy my own personal curiosity. But what did that actually look like from like moment to moment, day to day for you to really shift from my family is my partner and my kids to my family is work. And this is allowing me to actually feel good staying in this job that damn near killed you. You know, after 20 years, and same with even like shifting your relationship to what it meant to be a father. Like, what, how did you actually do that? And what did it look like day to day?
0: Yeah. So, that's a great question. And it is, it's really hard. So, part of what I did, and it, it's part of the process that, that helped me, and it really helps other people too, is I sat down and said, well, what is it that makes me tick? What is it where I, and, and what I defined it as, when do I feel like I'm in flow? like when am i in the zone when does the world slow down and i just feel connected to everything and i started to track that stuff and it, you know and it had nothing to do with my career and it was you know teaching communicating writing drawing working out like all the being in the sun like all these things and it was okay now how do i start to look for those elements in things going forward and so what it was was looking at relationships and situations and saying okay so when i looked at all the things that really inspired me and put me in flow. And I'd say, well, how can I keep this job? Like, how can I still be good at my career? And it was, well, don't expect your career to provide these things. You're in a career, Rob, that doesn't offer that. So how are you gonna satisfy that? Because that was the key thing is for 20 years, all of those things were still there. I didn't know them. And and because I didn't know them, I didn't realize I was deficient in addressing them. And so all of that malnutrition Like that—that causes that toxic response, and so it was okay. How are you going to address that? Well, I'm going to write more creatively. Okay, put, do it. Like, how are you going to how are you going to create stuff? How are you going to teach? I took a teaching job. Now I'm an adjunct professor at a law school because I was like, I love to teach. Let me just do this. And so what happened was, every time I addressed one of these unaddressed kind of value, these things that caused me to go into flow. Once I did it. It like expanded my energy and capacity. And so now it's like, well, work wasn't so draining because it was getting refilled by all these other things that I identified. And so that was a slow process. And because I had kind of detached myself from what I wanted as an outcome of my career and what I wanted as an outcome of my life everything lowered in severity. Suddenly the job wasn't so serious anymore. It was, it's performing a role. It is not a means to an end. It is just simply performing a role right And on fatherhood, that was really interesting because I I have two sons, one that lives with me and and one that lives with my former partner. Um, And they're only three years apart. and, And my older son, who is going to be 16 in January, he lives with me, the 13 year old was my former partner. Um, when I let go of the idea of fatherhood, there were two things I had to do. The, the first thing was I had to let go of this constant sense of responsibility because I, I, I wore responsibility of a father, like a, like a heavy cloak. And it was everything felt smothering. Oh, I want to go out and have fun and play. Oh, I can't. You're a dad. Oh, I wanted to, you can't, you have responsibilities Oh, I want to spend money on that. Oh, you shouldn't because you should buy something for your kids. So I had to let go of that because that that just wasn't helpful to allow me to breathe. And then the second thing was I had to let go of what I thought a dad was. I had a preconceived notion when I went into fatherhood that I was going to be a stern, rules-based dad, and I was going to be that one that forged really strong young men. I have a health issue that has kind of shortens my my life expectancy. So I didn't expect to be around until their adulthood. So I felt pressured to, to raise them a certain way. And so that caused me to be really stern and really strict. That was my idea of what I wanted to be. That didn't take into account what kind of father my kids needed. And so my older son is, is troubled. And part of that is because of the trauma that I instilled on him. And instead of making somebody that was resilient, I effectively made an anvil, somebody that was indestructible, you know, and, and nothing affects him. And then my other son really retreated from me and wants nothing to do with me because I was too stern for him. So what I had to do is say, don't be the dad you want to be, be the dad they need. And so That process allowed me to redefine how I was going to do it, but I needed to be open. Like I had to have a conversation with my older son to be like, look, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm going to read you. And based on what's happening with you, I'm going to adjust how I'm parenting you. And this is is a work in process for both of us. Both of us are invested in this. That alone was a huge relief. And being willing to say, I don't know, and to venture into areas where I didn't know what it looked like because i hadn't imagined it you know you only kind of know when you have a, a notion so to go into murky waters and be like i don't know what's going to happen like let's find out so those those things like letting go of those models and and really being willing to look through what the emotional rewards are that you want were, were really helpful in both those contexts
1: yeah oh, that's awesome thank you for sharing all of that i think that's really valuable for so many people to hear what was your relationship with support, I know you started getting obviously a lot of support after the suicide attempt, but how did your relationship around asking for support and vulnerability, like you said, change with friends and family and everyone
0: else? Yeah, really. It was hard. It was a long process. And what was interesting is, so I got comfortable asking for help uh, from my support system, like really close friends um, I've trained in martial arts for a long time. And so my training partners are like my family. And, and the thing that's really amazing about them is there's a level of trust that you have because they're responsible for my physical well being while we train together and vice versa. So you, you have a bond that's really strong. So when it comes to emotional conversations and, and things about, you know, kind of those really vulnerable stuff, there's an inherent trust that's already there. Um, and so being able to access friends that could provide support and, and my mother's been super supportive of this in that my mother is actually, she's kind of taken the same lesson that I have, which is she is the mom that I need based on what I need, not the mom she wants to be. And so she's really matching me as well. I moved away from all of my support system, So I had my support system in place. I went back. Everything was fine. But what I realized, there was still this massive deficiency in me. And and the deficiency was I needed to be in a different location, like environmentally. I needed to be physically in a different climate. And I needed to do more with my physical self. I needed to hike more. I needed to be outside more. I needed to be somatically connected in a way I couldn't be. In my old place, so I lifted myself up and moved, and so I walked away from all of those relationships. That was extremely challenging, Um, and but the amazing thing is, they are still there, and so there was a lot of outreach and support from them throughout that process. Support of letting me get stabilized on my own and allowing me to come back and ask for help when I needed it, and then to kind of maintain the normal dialogue. And then in starting a new place, like when that sense of being alone was a little frightening, but it was also empowering because it was almost like training wheels on this new self-identity that I had, where it was like, okay, I can kind of figure this out on my own. And if stuff gets a little scary, I have this support system. And so that was really cool. Cause I didn't feel like, I think if I stayed in the same spot, I'd feel smothered where I'd still be expected to perform in the same role. And so this allowed me to redefine my role and know I still had a safety net under me.
1: Yeah. That makes me think of, so there's two things that I harp on all the time and everything that I talk about, and it's context and discernment. Like context is king. What is the situation? Who are you? Like what, what is going on unique to your personality and your desires and all of that? And then discernment, like having the, level of trust and faith in yourself to discern what's right and wrong for you. And then that trust to actually navigate it. And what I think is so amazing and incredible about your story is that a lot of times, like I am definitely a burn it all to the ground kind of person. And I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do because again, context and discernment. But for me, when I hit a breaking point like that, I'm very much like I have to cut everything off in order to come back to myself. And what's so incredible about your journey is that you did all of that inside of keeping the job, you know, like keeping the job that was a big factor in your unhappiness leading up to the suicide attempt. And so I think that that's such a powerful thing, but I would, I would love to hear what your relationship was to self-trust and faith before and how, if at all, it shifted in the aftermath.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you know, I can really identify with the burn it to the ground too, because that is kind of, I mean, clearly when, when I'm like, hey, suicide's enough, that's a burn it to the ground. It's like, it's pretty significant. And it, and it is, that self-trust is actually really scary because that was counter to everything I had done basically for my whole adult life. I followed a well-worn path blazed by others. I was following people I trusted because I believed it was okay for me. And it might've been good for them, but it doesn't mean it's okay for me. And I didn't listen to my intuition, that inner discernment that knew what was right for me. And so when it got time to rebuilding things and redefining my path too, there were moments where what I was considering sounded crazy on paper. It just sounded nuts and everybody was against it. And I had to really just trust that discernment and and what's real, that, that inner intuition. And what really helped me was um, I adopted this model for certain types of risk decision making. And, and it's a parody that I call worst case scenario and lottery. And, and what I basically said is, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? Assume I'm wrong and my intuition is off. What's the worst case scenario? And, and the, the foundation of everything is you survive and then you just figure it out. Because like if you don't survive, well then there's no point in worrying about it. Like why are you even going to worry about it? So like once I set the ground of you survive, it's like, well okay, everything's fine. I can I can manage this, and so that really enabled me to listen to my intuition without so much fear and, and take chances. That of building things. So when I look at um, when I look at my relationship with my sons, it's very counter to what a lot of people do. The idea that we dissolve the family entirely is shocking. And and it wasn't by choice, meaning my, par- my partner was pretty much set on that. My partner did not want my older son at all and did not want to give up any kind of custody for the younger son. And there was a really unhealthy tension that existed. And so when it was, well, you can't move with me. My mom is a really traditional mom, like Italian from New York, like family is everything. She was like, you can't move away from your boys. And I was like, I can, like, I understand that people don't, but I have to be willing to say, is my situation different? And what's the context of my situation? Like you said, and so it was, okay, let me try this. And again, if I try it and I'm wrong, what's the worst case happens? We, we go back and start over again. And so that was a big thing of taking that gamble and putting myself in a situation and saying, my context is different than other things I've seen. Now, what's my intuition tell me about it? And how can I move forward? There's a lot of listening in there and there's a lot of willingness to be wrong. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Like, and so the idea of being wrong with what I would consider high stakes things is terrifying. But it's like, Rob, you, you've been you've been wrong your whole life. You just didn't know it. You were wrong from the time you picked your career and you were wrong throughout all these things. Your partner, everything was wrong. What are you worried about being wrong now for? Like, and so you're right. The context and the discernment is, is so essential in having that kind of faith.
1: Yeah. So what was it like for you? Like it's, it's pretty apparent with your work around this path to concept, but share with us how this whole experience and everything that you did in your healing process has really influenced your sense of purpose and your work in the world?
0: Yeah, it, well, it has. And so a lot of when I started to pick myself apart and say, you know, what are the things that make me feel alive, that feel totally connected? And then how do I begin to honor them through actions and build that part of my life? I really had to overcome the Limiting beliefs about like, well, I can't do that in my circumstances. And what was really empowering was realizing that I could do everything I wanted to do. And there was no limit. And so I could sit there and say, I wish I was a teacher. All right, well, let's go, let's go find a way that I can teach. Okay, cool. Uh, I really want to write. Well, let's find a way that we can write. And so it was all these things. It was kind of like pursuing it, knowing that there was no limit. And once I took the pressure of needing to perform a certain role off the table, it becomes a blank palette. And it's like, you can add whatever you want to it. And that, that process was really powerful of being able to say, okay, address what it is that, that fulfills you. And then what are your values, Rob? How are you going to honor your values? And it was, well, I, I, I really value communication. I honor clear communication and I love to communicate in a way that is engaging, entertaining. Okay. We'll start finding ways to be a speaker, be a public speaker. And it's like, well, how do you fit all this in? Just do it. And 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 that's what happens. And because you get locked in an identity of, well, am I a professional? Well, you can be anything you want. And so it, it was really building that out. What really helped the most was that junk drawer approach because what a, The way I can best describe that is you think you know what's in you until you pour it out. And, and what happened was I spent a lot of time taking out every personality trait and attribute that I had, positive, negative, any feedback I've ever received from somebody and put it all on paper and said, this is what I look like based on characteristics and attributes. What do I want to look like? And so I had to create this kind of future vision of like, wh- who do I want to be? And then say, now, which ones of these fit in that future person? And now, how do I retain this? And so it was essentially going through the junk drawer of saying, why do I have this? Is is it of a future value? If yes, keep it. If no, did it have a value at some point? And can I understand why? You know, why are you petty? Oh, because I felt hurt a long time in my life. And so I wanted to hurt other people. Okay, well, if you don't feel as hurt as much, do you need this? No. Okay, get rid of it. And so it was going through that and creating kind of like a new inventory of personality traits and saying, these are the things that I am going to adhere to and being very deliberate in that. What that allowed me to do is the first thing it did was it allowed me to close the gap between where I was today and that future vision of myself. When you sit there and you dump everything out and you think, well, I'm a mess. And when you pick it apart and you realize that in your future self, there's still like a 60%, 70% overlap. It's like, wow, I'm almost there. (laughs) And so it felt a lot closer. And then it also gave me the confidence to know I was equipped to do whatever I want. So when I looked at situations and said, yeah, I really want to embark on developing a course and empowering people, like give this information to somebody because I paid an extreme cost to get this. It's not fair that everyone else should have to pay the same cost, like share it. Well, how? And it's like, well, I can go to my traits and say, well, I have that in me. I know I have the resources to do it. And that, like, really getting that sense of capability while knowing I'm already closer to where I want to be, that was totally empowering. And that really, it changes the mindset so much in trying to recover. And especially recover from a spot where it felt like everything was just an abject failure. And it's like, yes, all of that was a failure, but you're still pretty darn close to where you want to be. So let's get moving. Yeah, it was invigorating.
1: Yeah, I love so much of what you're saying. These are all my favorite topics. But it sounds like in the work that I do, we talk a lot about like points of reference. And it sounds like going through the junk drawer of yourself, gave you a lot of insight and information that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And is this... Like, I know you developed a process inside the work that you do now. Is this like a big part of that process or is there more to it?
0: Yeah. So it is, it is a keystone of the process. And there are other parts because really what I, what I like to do or what I had to do and I found really effective is first orient of where am I like, and that was one of the things the benefit of coming out of the suicide attempt was disorienting because it was like, where am I? Like, what, who am I? What is going on? And so kind of that get an orientation of, what's working in life and what's not working in life. And who are you, you know, when we, when we climb out of our roles, what really makes me tick? So that's part of it. And then the, the junk drawer is kind of the making sure that we're prepared to move forward. And in the middle is that big question about ask yourself the challenges of what if it's okay. Now how do I take all these things that, that really make me feel alive and manifest them? What are the things that I wish I could do And now let's set about a process, a plan to do it. And then you go through the junk drawer to make sure that you have the resources to do it. And it, and it kind of builds itself, right? It's like, Oh, I'm going to build a plan that uses all the things inside of me that aren't getting addressed and and all the emotional rewards I want. And then I'm going to confirm the fact that I have most of the tools to get there anyway. And then it's like, wow, okay, then there's nothing in my way. It's just a question of when, and that's really driven by now. Why, why wait? And so, that overall process it's just it's just been really rewarding and the learning about the self when I do that junk tour process, one of the things I realized was it's really effective when I do it on post-it notes. Like if I do it on sticky notes and put it on a wall, what it does it actually creates a mosaic. And so and and it, it actually is a mosaic that represents me, right? So it's like, oh this is these are all the little pieces that make up the picture of me. And what's amazing is you can take one of those things away. You can take, take away jealousy, boom, throw it out. Well, now the picture changes. And all you did was remove one thing. So the slightest change can actually change the picture. And so that was really like, wow, it's not so insurmountable. That reinvention process isn't insurmountable and it's never too late. And that's the other thing too is, you know, when we end up committed on a certain path for a while and then we get stuck and things blow up or fall apart, There's that question of, did I miss it? Like, did I miss my opportunity to get what I want? And regret's a nasty thing. There's, you know, there's tons of studies on what happens with regret. And so knowing that there's still time and it doesn't take a lot, that it's the slightest change that can alter the outcome was really, that was a good guiding light for me throughout this entire process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have two questions to kind of wrap up our conversation. And the first is, it's all relative, right? Like it was 20 years leading up to your dark night of the soul. And then it's been only a couple years since your suicide attempt. And if you're willing, I would love to hear, how do you feel about that attempt now being two years on the other side of it?
0: Yeah, it was still the right decision. Cause I ask myself that all the time. Like, was that, was that unnecessary? And it was like no that was still the right decision like i was so locked into a mentality that there was only one way out for me and that was i needed to end that mentality and there was no amount of you know talk therapy or somebody or coming to my senses that was going to get me out of it i needed to really resolve that mentality there are things i'm not proud about like the fact that it was in front of my boys but and and I can rationalize why I knew what my plan was. My plan was to have a conversation with them about, you know, what they were going to do for the next 20 years and to hear about the stuff I think I was going to miss. And so that was, it was good closure. There was a ton of closure. So is that something I'm proud of? No. Is it something I change? Probably not. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Everything happens how it's supposed to. And we can have different like, Thoughts about it afterwards, but it's just there's some things that they they couldn't have gone any other way.
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And then my favorite question to ask at the end is what's something that you wish you would have known earlier on in your life, like back when you were 18, 20 years old.
0: Absolutely. I, I absolutely wish I would have known what I know now in terms of emotional rewards in life. And so what I found was that our society and our culture. We're always focused on the end result and what the end result gets you from, from a tangible perspective. We're never really interested in the process, right? So school can be hard and miserable. You're just trying to get grades so you can get into a university and get a good job. Like all of that is, is far out in the future. Had I known that that was a flawed concept and I really needed to be focused on the quality of my life on a day-to-day basis not the eventual quality of my life. I would have made radically different decisions and I would have been more informed and able to address my emotional rewards in the present at that moment than saying, eventually I'll address the things I want to my, the emotions I want to experience like happiness. I would have done that stuff a lot earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, me too. <laughs> um, we're going to link to all of your amazing work in the show notes, but please tell everyone how they can find you, how they can learn from you, and how they can work with you.
0: Absolutely. So I have a website. It's called Path to Coaching, and two is the number two. So it's path and number two coaching.com. And there's all of my information there, as well as just kind of more descriptions about the process. And then you can find me on Facebook under Rob Tull, and there's content there. And I'm approachable. The, the thing I love the most is helping people. And that's really one of the things, like the reason I can kind of do all the things I'm doing is because I don't let it, myself be limited. I, I want to have a fulfilling life and, and touch as many people as I can.
1: Yeah, awesome. Rob, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story.
0: Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv free, including access to an eight-week sampler of our renowned journey mapping program. That gives you instant access to impactful training lessons, life-changing exercises, and our signature AccuSesh processes that you can implement immediately. We'd love your help in getting the message out and growing our community. So please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes. I'll catch you in the next episode.